John chapter 2, in our series, Meet Your Maker. You know, it's quite possible for two people to perform precisely the same action, but to do so for radically different reasons. <coughs> for instance, two people can engage in conversation at Thanksgiving dinner. One can be motivated to listen out of a desire to know the one talking. That person may talk in order to help and encourage, and they may indeed help out of selfless love. Another can do exactly the same thing, listen, speak, and help, but do so for profoundly different reasons. They can listen for an opening for us to talk. Or they get satisfaction as you find out just how messed up the other person is. Or how little they know. We can speak in order to impress with how much we know. We can help for a selfish reason, to get a pat on the back, or to put a notch on the little scorecard that so many of us keep. This applies to everything that we do. To buying, to giving, to helping, to talking. We can do the same thing as someone else for completely different reasons. This distinction between what we do and why we do it is for those of us who ask, what would Jesus do? A very important distinction. Because it's possible to do what Jesus did, but not do it for the same reason for which Jesus did it. I wonder how many of us got angry this week. I wonder how many of us were angry just yesterday. How about this? How about this morning? How about right now? Our passage today tells us that Jesus got angry. Got very angry. That was verse number 13 of John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and other special people exchanging money. So he made a whip out of course, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the table. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, deal for your house will consume you. The truth is, the things about which we got angry this week, and the reasons for which those things angered us, were quite different from what motivated Jesus' anger. This morning, let's ask ourselves what motivates us, particularly in our anger, in the title of this morning's message. Is it a passion for me or a passion for thee? As we seek to answer that, let me give a little background to the events that we're going to read from the life of Jesus from John chapter 2, and I invite you to follow along with the outline we provided at the back of your program. The story in the life of Jesus tells us that Jesus, the Lord, is passionate about holy worship. The Bible teaches that we serve a God who has done all things 
and does all things for one purpose, one purpose only, to display his glory. We survey the history of his dealings with mankind, we find over and over again that he acted for his glory. In fact, when he saved us, he did that for his glory. When God displays his glory by what he does, it ought to result in worship of the part of his creatures. When God makes his glory known, it should cause us to respond with praise and obedience and worship. As God reveals himself to us, we respond in wonder and in awe, and we proclaim his greatness and his goodness, and we bend our knees to submit to this great and this glorious God. God is passionate about his own worship. That's why God placed a resplendent temple in the Holy Spirit. It's why his people were commanded to be people of worship. When Jesus entered the temple, he saw that things were not as they ought to be. He set about to make them right. Jesus was motivated. He acted out of a passion for holy worship. It teaches us a couple of things about worship. One is that worship of our God must, in fact, be holy. I remember what the word holy means. Holy means set apart, different. The Bible teaches that our God is holy. It means that he is not part of his creation. It also means that he's absolutely pure. And this holy God commands us to be holy people. And that's why the Bible says, be holy because I am holy. His worship, therefore, is to be holy worship. You'll remember in his commandments to his chosen people, the nation Israel, in the first part of your Bible, he set aside a day for worship. It's called the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday. And he said, remember the Sabbath, here's how, by keeping it holy. Holiness governs his worship. On the head dressing of the high priest, there was a little gold panel engraving that said, Holiness to the Lord. From start to finish, God's dealings with mankind communicate the fact that He's holy, and we are to reflect that holiness. These creature types sometimes get caught up in rhetorical flourishes, and they say stuff that when you think about it, just don't make sense. Like, preachers will sometimes say, all ground for the Christian is holy ground, and every bush is a burning bush. Sounds good, except... One of the things that make burning bushes really cool is there aren't many. Our holy ground really different is that not all ground is the same. Holy ground is holy ground because something sacred, something different is placed there. All of life indeed is to be embraced and governed by the truth of the Word of God, but there are things that are specifically to be set apart from that which is every day and mundane. But what kinds of things are we holy? The Lord's worship, for instance. The Lord's table. The Lord's church. Holy people, different, set apart. The Lord's word. These are holy. They're unlike any other gathering in the case of assembling on the Lord's day. It's unlike any other meal in the perfection of the Lord's table. The church is unlike any other group. The Bible is unlike any other word spoken by any other person. They are holy to the Lord. 
holy worship. I'll give you a couple of things with regard to holy worship. One, it has a proper focus. Remember what transpired that day when Jesus went out to celebrate the Passover and he went into the temple, which was the focal point of the worship of his father. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. Herod, a hated and despised ruler, had sought to gain peace with the Jewish people by rebuilding the temple. The temple was a massive structure. The temple itself was small, but it was surrounded by several courtyards. There was the courtyard for the priests. There was the courtyard for the Jewish men. There was the courtyard for the Jewish women. The outer courtyard was the courtyard for the Gentiles. In the courtyard of the Gentiles, Caiaphas, the high priest, hit upon this money-making scheme. He figures people have to come here in order to sacrifice. And if they travel a great distance, they can't bring their sacrifice with them, so they need to be able to purchase something here. Some of those stalls in the courtyard of the temple will engage in a little business. In fact, people who come here to pay the temple tax have a shekel for every sale. They can exchange it into the acceptable currency right here. And he would skim a little off the top. When Jesus walked into the courtyard of the Gentiles, he saw the livestock. He heard the confusing bleeding and booing and smelled the smells in his father's temple. He saw the crowd surrounding tables where the money changers sat. He looked over to the side. He saw some cords that were lying on the ground, probably those used to bring the livestock in. He quickly braided something together into a long whip. He walked up and he threw over the table with the money changers and he began to lash out. His eyes sparked with anger. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And he clears this massive courtyard. There were two problems that were taking place with the money changers and those who were selling livestock. When they brought their business into the temple, they concluded, hear this, that worship was really about them, not about God. So let me remind you, as I remind myself, worship is not about us. We have bought into a consumptive lifestyle. In our consumer mentality, we brought into the church, and we say, what's it for me? It's nothing less than what these people were doing. Because worship of God is not for profit. There are those who today blatantly teach that if you worship, you will receive things in return. That's why you hear me speak on the televangelist so often. God will give you health and wealth and success. The Bible absolutely teaches no such thing. Yet too often we approach God in similar ways. We put our money in the offering plate, believing that somehow if we do this, God will give you something in return. It may be true. God may bless you. But you cannot approach God with the attitude that we give in order to get. Many people walk through the doors of the church and their first concern is about their needs being met. The greater concern should be what are the needs of others that I can help meet? The greatest concern should be who does God view me? 
And it's God being glorified in me. Worship is not about us, and it's not about the process. And further, it's not even really about our convenience. It's very convenient for the worshiper who travels far to come to the temple under the tree. He could purchase the appropriate sacrifice right there within the temple gate. He didn't have to search through the city. He didn't have to go across the Jordan to where the flocks were herded. It was convenient. I ask you, how many of us, how many of God's people who come to this church are more concerned with convenience than worship? I need to think about it. I don't know whether the Lord is going to bless us with a ministry center at which we can all gather together on the Lord's day anytime soon. I don't know that. We'll see how the Lord blesses us. You know we have a piece of land. Uh, God's grace will give us something on someday before he returns. But maybe not. You know, one of the first thoughts somebody of us had was, so, will we set up chairs so Jesus returns? <laughs> You know, in some ways that's good. Because it reminds us that worship is not convenient. And us giving a ministry center is not really about our convenience. It's about furthering the glory and the work of the Lord. And if we can do that, and it helps us do that, praise the Lord. If He chooses to have us worship in a school cafeteria, praise the Lord as well. What does it take, I ask you, to keep us? from the fellowship of the saints and the worship of God and what the Bible calls the Lord's Day. Today, the first day, Sunday. For many of us, not much. The principle of worship is not about us. It's not designed to bring about our profit, not for our convenience. And therefore, it should be obvious that worship is about the Father. So notice Jesus' response to these money changers and those who sold livestock. He says in verse 16 again, Get these out of here. How dare you turn whose house, my father's house, into a market? Worship is about God. And it has always been about God and no one else. And so may we come into God's presence, not asking what's in it for me, but what's in it for him. May we leave our gathering with the people of God, not asking what I please, but what he pleased. Holy worship is about the Father. Holy worship has a proper method as well. You know that Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his ministry, once at the beginning, once at the end. Uh, it tells you something about humanity, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You get it the first time. When Jesus cleansed it the second time, he accused them of turning the temple to the den of thieves and robbers. But that's not the issue here in this first cleansing of the temple. He said that these money changers, and for those who sold livestock, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? There's nothing wrong with a market in a marketplace. But there is something very wrong about using marketing in God's place. And so many of our churches have turned God's church into a market. It's an issue of propriety, what's appropriate for the worship of God. Whenever anyone entered and looked into the court of the Gentiles and saw a setting like any flea market or bazaar in town, there was no difference. It was not holy. 
Friends, there's a problem with an abortion as it pertains to the component of what we do is we gather together as God's people. We don't just make it up, and we're not free to simply make it up. All of the components, all the stuff we do, is based upon what the Bible tells us God wants done when we come together. He wants us to pray. He wants us to give to Him. He wants us to read His Word. He wants us to sing praise to Him. He wants us to proclaim His Word. And further, if worship is about God who makes His glory known and reveals His character, then our response of praise and submission to obedience must reflect that holy character. We understand that worship must be holy because He is holy. That eliminates a lot of the nonsense that goes in our churches today. It leaves no room for the profane. Now hear me, friends. You have heard me say many times, and I will continue to say, the Bible gives us freedom in the forms that we choose in order to carry out the directives that He gives us in Scripture. We have to make wise choices about how we do that. But that does not mean that all forms are equally valid. Do whatever makes you feel good, or do whatever works. Worship is holy has a proper focus. It's not about us. About God. It has a proper message that is drawn from the pages of Scripture and is designed to reflect the holiness of the one we serve. It's another thing that we see. Not only is it holy, but as we say in your outline, worship must be passionate. Verse 17 says this The disciples remember that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. At some point, his disciples remembered that there was Scripture that talked about his zeal and passion for the house of God. They saw this as characterizing the characterizing principle that governed what took place in the temple that day. Zeal for your house will consume me means I'm eaten up with zeal for your house. The word consume used here is usually used in a negative sense. It means to be eaten up and in some context so thoroughly eaten up as to be destroyed. A very strong word showing Jesus' passionate commitment that was reflected in his undivided loyalty. Passionate worship, friends, is undivided loyalty. It was Jesus' singular focus that his God would be worshipped in a proper manner. Now listen to me. Some people say from time to time, Pastor, I want my child to have a respectable dose of Christianity. That's why I bring them to some of these kids' programs you have. Every kid's got to have a little religious instruction. I want them to have a respectable dose of Christianity. But like any parent, I don't want them to become a fanatic. We see that attitude. And friends, when we see that, I think we need to respond this way. Do you want your child to be like Christ? Because Jesus was consumed. Jesus was, in that sense, fanatic for the glory of the Father. And so we don't say, I want my kids to learn the lingo, I want them to live a moral life, we want all of them, but we want much more than that. Listen to me. If you just want to live a moral life, be a Mormon. For so many of us, Christ makes no difference. Christianity is radically different in what it does, but also in why it does it. You cannot be holy, friends, without the world deeming you to be weird. 
Now let me just say, don't go out of your way to be weird. Okay? We got enough weird Christians who are just weird because they're just weird. You don't need that. But if you live according to a different value system, people will find that strange. If you say, you know, I go to church and I can learn the Bible on a Wednesday night, so my kids can learn the Bible on a Wednesday night. I gather on a Sunday night in a house with some people and we discuss God's Word and we pray together and we fellowship together. And I go on Sunday morning so I can sing praise to Him, to encourage and be encouraged. People are going to look at you like, you go how many times a week? Are you crazy? They're like really serious about this. So let me ask you, are you consumed with the passion to see people everywhere raise their voices and praise to the God who alone is worthy of worship? Jesus was consumed with undivided loyalty. That passion, the worship of the Father, expressed itself in righteous anger. Something was taking place that caused Jesus to appear with such authority that one man was able to drive the whole mob from the courtyard. Ever seen on television the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? How crazy it looks on TV? Can you imagine somebody deciding to clear the floor? Get out a whip, driving them out? How long do you think that would last? Not long. tackled pretty much. And Jesus stepped into a prime, crowded marketplace, cracked, cracked his whip, and he cried, How dare you? And he drove them all out. There's fire in his eye. Righteous anger. You know, the Bible says, In your anger, do not sin. It is possible to be angry without sin. And that's rare for most of us. But here, and the difference between righteous, godly anger and sinful anger, that anger that we usually have. Because the issue is whether we're upset about our own rights. Or are we upset about issues pertaining to God's righteousness? Obviously, Jesus was concerned not with his own gain, but with the glory of his Father. We often hear, in fact, the Christmas season is coming, so we will hear more of gentle Jesus we can model. The concept has become so overbalanced and so overworked that it actually created a Christ in the minds of many people that bears no resemblance to the Christ of Scripture. We created a Jesus who has been drained of his deity, the fact that he is God and has all authority. He's a weak and good-natured man whose aim is to run us off the hook whenever he can. And Jesus is indeed meek and mild. And you can see the balance that with the other descriptions of Jesus in Scripture. Notice what the Bible says. He looked at them in anger and confronted by his distractors as to whether he should steal a man from the Sabbath. Can't you see the flash of emotion in his eye as he stared at that hypocritical crowd? There was nothing gentle in his message when he sent word to Herod some emissaries, and here's what he says. He wrote to Herod, he says, tell that fox, and then he tells himself. It was a derogatory term. Or how about his response to Peter when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
I'm sure the Pharisees in the temple saw nothing of his meekness and his mildness when he preached messages like the one that's recorded in Matthew 23, when he said, Woe to you blind guides, you blind fools. Woe to you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. They're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, and on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brutal vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Gentle Jesus, speak in mind. And here in John 2, we're confronted with a wild scene. Men grasping their money back, tables flying, the crack of the whip upon all who did not move. It was righteous anger. We see a pattern in the display of Jesus' anger. His anger was never directed at the ignorant masses, those who didn't know. But it was directed at those who claimed allegiance with God and should have known better. They felt the wrath of Christ Jesus. My friends, the Lord is passionate about holy worship. It must be holy, but we should have a proper focus. It's not about us, it's about the Father. We have a proper method. We should be passionate about this, even as Jesus was passionate. This undivided loyalty that was expressed in righteous anger. Now in verses 18 through 22, and more quickly, I want you to know that the Lord has the authority to regulate holy worship. Notice what it says in verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? How do you come in here? And Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days. But the temple, he had spoken of with his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples were called to give them. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. After he cleared the temple, the spiritual leaders of the Jews came to him and said, What is your authority to go and chase people out of here? And Jesus possesses, friends, all authority. At this particular time in Jesus' ministry, he was working under the direction of God the Father. Like the wicked, he wields the authority of God the Father. The Bible tells us that we're looking for a sign, a greater sign than they have asked for than one man single-handedly clearing the temple curtain. He didn't really want a sign. And really saying, who are you to tell us what to do? This is always the core problem when people engage in false worship. Unbelief is a challenge to God's rightful authority. It's not possible to respond properly to the king of heaven without bowing the knee that king's authority. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. There is not a molecule in all the universe that does not ultimately submit to his authority. And Jesus proved his authority, as we tell you in the outline, by his resurrection. They demanded a miraculous sign. He responded, destroy the temple, I'll raise it again in three days. He offered to give them a sign that they would never accept. You destroy the temple. But ultimately, he said, destroy my body, kill me, and I'll rise from the dead, and eventually he did that. His resurrection proved all that he claimed. 
And I was invested him of all authority so that every one of every tongue in heaven and on earth will fall forward. This Lord Jesus, who possesses all authority, who died on the cross to provide forgiveness of our sin and prove his truth, and he alone can forgive sin and create a body of worshipers throughout his world, he demands our worship. He has the right, the authority to control our worship and how we do it. So, friends, how do you show your submission to the glorious King of heaven? Finally, in verses 23 and 25, I want you to know that the Lord does not accept superficial commitments to holy worship. Notice what it says in verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now, John, who wrote this, intends for us to understand that the seven miracles that he selected to highlight throughout the pages of this book, those signs, but not all that Jesus did. Jesus performed many miracles. And people saw the miracles and responded with belief. And that's terrific and exciting until we read verse 24. Which says this, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. There's a play on words in Greek here. You're discussing it here in Greek, as you know. They believed in him, but literally, Jesus did not believe in them. And the issue was not, do they know Christ? The issue was, does Christ know them? Not all who claim to be believers are true worship. Because true worship is not a matter of external display. You can attend church every service and not be a follower of Jesus Christ. It begins with the transformation of the heart. A desire to know God. A desire to receive the forgiveness that He alone can give. A desire to appropriate the loving gift that God has offered in the sacrifice of His Son to take the place of sinners like you and me. The beginning point is a changed heart. And when somebody says, why are you so weird? It's because I've been changed from the inside out. And I desire to know this God. I don't have to go to church. I want to go to church. Because that's where I meet with God's people. That's where God meets with His people in a special way. That's where we hear His word taught. We sing praise to Him. I learn of him. And I desire to do that. My friends, Jesus will not be impressed by our external, superficial display. Because finally, Jesus is the one who examines our hearts. Verse 25. He did not keep man's testimony about him. For he knew what was in him. It's not what you say. It's what he sees. And that's the issue for all of us. And so we find that with all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus Christ commands our wholehearted worship and holiness. The New Testament goes on to teach that worship is this temple, the one spoken of in John chapter 2, was abolished because a greater than the temple is here, Jesus Christ. And he has become our high priest. 
But in a very real sense, he's transformed each individual believer here to, into a temple where the Holy Spirit takes up residence. Believers congregated in local assemblies are called a temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 in your Bible. We are his temple. Someone has asked us a compelling question. What would Jesus find if he visited your temple? Would he find that you and I have transformed the Holy of Holies, filled with the Shekinah glory of God, into something awful and profane? If your heart is a temple, has it become something else? And your heart is drawn to and captivated by something like a savings account? By a recreation property? Did your heart become a library filled with irrelevant thoughts? Has your heart become a sign of sensuality? What would Jesus find if he didn't be worth it? There are times when Jesus comes into our lives with a wicked hand. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 12 says that every son whom he loves, he scourges, he whips. Friends, what does God see in the throne room? of your life today. We're going to pray in just a moment. As we do, it's an opportunity for each of us, myself included, to do business with God, to confess for the Lord. Our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to be the God I love, as the songwriter says. So we're going to bow and we can confess that. But did you hear me say earlier that it all starts with a transformed heart? When does that happen? That happens when you initially come to Jesus. And you say, you know, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against your standard of the Holy God. I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ came to do for me what I could not do for myself. He died to pay the penalty for my sin on the cross. The Bible says that you receive him by believing who he is and what he did for you. And when we go, we offer you opportunity to do that. What do I do? I realize that I'm a sinner. I recognize Jesus died for my sin. I repent of my sin. Lord, I don't want to go my way any longer. I want to follow your way as I learn it from you. You receive Jesus into your life. How do you do that? I'm going to pray here in a moment. You can pray a prayer from your heart to God like this in your own words. If you are genuine in that desire, He'll begin the transformation from the inside out. Let's call the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. And we should be reminded of the character of the God who came in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have so skewed your character. As we talk about your love and your mercy and your grace and how marvelous those are, that we've forgotten that you're a holy God. That you are indeed God. That you can command us in all aspects of our lives, including our worship of you. And so, Lord, I thank you for this reminder for me, for us as your people. And in this moment, I pray that we are doing business with you. That we are coming into your throne room, where you have bid us come because Jesus has opened access to it for us. And we're saying, Lord, I confess my sin. I call it what it is. 
There are other things, there are other people that become more important to me than you on the throne of my heart. So Lord, I want to enthrone you again in my life. We tend to desire within me, Lord, to know you, to serve you, to reflect you. I pray as well with them that there are men and women, boys and girls, who came into this room not knowing the Savior, who are being drawn to the Savior right now. I pray that you move upon their hearts so that they see their needs of the one and only, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. They're receiving you as Savior, and you're beginning the transformation process in them that you have with us. Thank you for these things. Glorify yourself in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.